0: Online at KFUO.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 19 on the cause of sin. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Congregation in Mason City, Iowa, and my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, welcome back to Concord Matters.
1: Great to be back with you, Sean.
0: Absolutely. Just had you on a couple weeks ago talking about Article 17, and now we have you back again to talk about the cause of sin, everybody's favorite topic and actually said that back in Article 2 when it came up before, but we'll, <laughs> we'll get back to that here in a second. A lot to talk about with sin, even though it is being brought up again, and so let's just jump into it here with reading the article in its entirety. So, uh, of course, a reminder that on this show we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, a publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is Article 19 from the Augsburg Confession on the Cause of Sin. Our churches teach that although God creates and preserves nature, the cause of sin is located in the will of the wicked, that is, the devil and ungodly people. Without God's help, this will turn itself away from God, as Christ says, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. And that is a quote from John chapter 8, verse 44. And that's the entirety of Article 19 from the Augsburg Confession on the cause of sin. Now, as I said already, we kind of dealt with this a little bit earlier in Article 2 on original sin. So, Pastor Bessel, what's the reason the confessors bring this discussion in here again in the Augsburg Confession, especially? I'm just going to throw this out here at the beginning when we consider that the apology comes back and states that the confutation had no problem with this. You know, the adversaries accept Article 19. And so, if there's not really any disagreement there, um, obviously the Augsburg Confession was presented first and then the Roman Catholics responded with the confutation. So, it wasn't a back and forth in that kind of sense. But, uh, you know, why bring it up again here if this isn't really an area of controversy, at least as far as the confutation having an issue with it and the Roman Catholics having an issue with it?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question because, as you mentioned in your uh, conversation, I believe it was Pastor Beck, uh, and you guys sort of joked that you know this is everyone's favorite topic to talk about sin, and here it comes up again. And so talk about sort of being a glutton for punishment. That here we're going to talk about it for another hour when there there's really very little added to the discussion here in Article 19. And as you you know, as the reader might jump forward to the apology. The apology is almost, the explanation is almost shorter in the apology than it is here in the Augsburg Confession. So why in the world would it would it come up again? When I was with you a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned how Article 17 is really the end of a first section, and that first section basically lays out the totality of Christian doctrine from the creation to Christ's coming again in glory. And now these last articles sort of start a new Subtopic, if you will, a subcategory, and a new discussion. And these articles are really articles that focus on what are some of the controverted issues that we have with Rome. And if you notice in Article 18, as you guys discussed last week, and now 19, and then Article 20, these three articles free will, the cause of sin, good works they really very calmly and sort of subtly hit at Rome's definition of how people justify themselves and what role does free will have in justification or, or or does the will have in justification what role does man have or, or what ability supposedly does man have in overcoming sin what role does he have in contributing to sin what about good works how do good works play in the supposed question of justification so i really think that's why article 19 comes up here even though it's in many ways it's a total repeat of article 2 and yet it sort of asks I think the bigger question, because uh, as you've hinted at in a couple different conversations, you know, Rome's theology, especially uh, at that time, and I think we would still have to argue today as well, is not so often grounded in the scriptures as much as it's grounded in either church tradition or really in philosophy. And so you're really addressing sort of a philosophical issue here of where did sin come from? How does sin show up? And there might be a philosophical desire to talk about that from the origins of earth. Uh, And I think, you know, we've got plenty of time here in the hour to really address that in the origins. Although, interestingly, in our confessions, we really don't spend a lot of time trying to guess at that. We simply say in Article 2 regarding original sin, since the fall, here's the reality. We don't spend a lot of time saying, well, uh, let's try to philosophically debate where sin came from i think that apologetically it is important for us to at least have a simple answer to that to help folks understand that there's even a i think there's a different understanding between lutherans and uh, some other heterodox church teachings on uh, what sin is and so we can get into the very definition of sin as this hour goes on and so it's truly a philosophically driven controversy, I think, and therefore I think it's needed for apologetics. It comes back up here in Article 19 for that reason. The source of the issue is not so much, if you will, scriptural interpretation as much as it's how has logic and human reason affected Rome's views of sin and its role in man's either condemnation or man's ability to overcome it in justification.
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent setup. And one of the things that I think is really great about our Lutheran confessors is that they are capable and very skilled at taking those logical arguments on. Uh, Of course, their education completely prepared them for this. I mean, they were prepared in logic and rhetoric and all of those sorts of things that maybe Our education system just kind of fails at today. I'll just get my little dig in there. But uh, (laughs) uh, the reality is, is that, you know, they're very comfortable in this. And of course, Luther was schooled in this himself and so forth. And so when they take this on, they take on those logical philosophical arguments and respond with logical responses that really just completely take them apart. And, you know, and not just in the writings of the confessions here but certainly in their writings elsewhere. And as you say, it's kind of related with free will and everything else that we're presenting here in Good Works, which it's kind of the hub of what's going on with the Reformation and everything there. So Luther certainly has a lot to say on this. So I think it's important for us to get into some of that discussion and bring it down to Again, not that the confessions are unable to be engaged by lay people or even lay people today, even though I just gave my dig on our education. I'm included in that myself. Uh, But, you know, let's talk about this as what we want to kind of do here is just lay our foundation of where does sin come from? What's the cause? I mean, that's what we want to kind of answer and have a little Bible study here today just on that particular topic rather than rehashing what sin is which is maybe what I'll call article two, kind of more focused on that. So go ahead and get us into some of that air Pastor Bessel.
1: Sure, it, it sort of flows from that logical question, right? Where does sin come from? And that's a question that can trip people up and that if you follow logic and human reason, you either hit dead ends or you, you run down, you know, sort of the, uh, the rabbit hole and you just get yourself into all kinds of a mess. We start with a logical argument. God is the creator of all things. Sin is real. Sin leads to death, all die, we see the reality of it, and therefore God must have created it because he's the creator of all things. That's sort of one of the logical arguments. As even he says, dust you are and unto dust you shall return. And so people can say, well, look, this is simply part of God's understanding of his own creation. Of course, very simply and very quickly, we realize, well, the quote that we just gave, dust you are and unto dust you shall return, is in the shadows or the aftermath of the fall, not of the original creation. And so some of the discussion is as simple as saying, well, are we talking about things that happened on account of the creation or things that happened on account of the fall? But people will, again, they'll get themselves twisted into pretzel logic. God created the devil, and thus he must have also created sin right? And and so anything that man can sort of grab onto that has some sort of evil to it, they say, well, what is the source of that? And ultimately, the source must predate man because Adam and Eve were perfect and righteous. And so if the source predates man, then who's responsible for it? And so when you get into these logical arguments regarding the beginning of time, you're really, in a sense, groping in the dark because we weren't there, All we can do is go with the scriptural record because God's word is trustworthy and true. And the scriptural record does not indicate, as some try to misuse it, some try to misuse it to say that God is the author of evil, even as they use it. So this philosophical and logical argument tries to use the scripture. For example, it'll pit Psalm 139, where it says, you knit me in my mother's womb, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And it might even compare that to Psalm 51, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. And I believe that quote even came up or that verse even came up in the discussion on original sin all those weeks back, because people will say, well, wait a second, how can God create me so fearfully and wonderfully and at the same time I'm conceived in sin? And so people logically and rationally will look at this and say, well, then God must be the author of sin, and then they'll misuse a passage like Isaiah 45, in which some English translations make it sound like God is saying, I'm the author of well-being and evil, when really the word there is, is not about him being the source of evil, but rather him having authority even over all things that cause calamity, and that God is in control of all of these things. So, whether it's those types of verses or even passages that talk about the natural man, uh, and they'll say, well, if it's natural, then it must be according to creation. And so this is where people begin to um, really get into logical inconsistencies, or they think they're being logically consistent, but it's scriptural inconsistencies. And so we've sort of got to unpack all of that and help folks see that, no, actually the scriptures speak very clearly about what happened and what the relationship is between God and man in the beginning. So that when we talk about the natural man, we have to say is it the natural man according to creation or is it the natural man according to the fall? And is God the author of evil or is he simply the one who's in control over evil now that evil has entered the world? So that we we do not need doubt or fear that God has lost control over his creation. But that doesn't make him the source of evil. And that's really, I think, one of the foundational philosophical and logical issues with Article 19, is that even though the wording there really hints at what is happening in each individual life, you know, the words there are all very present tense, right? The cause of sin is located in the will of the wicked, that is, the devil and ungodly people without God's help, this will turns itself away. Present tense. Everything is very present tense, and so we, we don't want to get too far afield and think that this article is only about the original cause of sin, but that's where people will go with it, and they'll get themselves all wrapped up in this. And so we've got to very definitively help them understand that God cannot create evil because God, by definition, is holy and good. And as God is holy and good, he did not create evil. The scriptures speak clearly about Satan's fall into sin, or Satan's fall, if you will, from the throne. Ezekiel 28 is a good poetic description of that. The scriptures speak, of course, very clearly about man's fall into sin. And so I think that's the very first and surface level argument is to say, well, the scriptures actually show us where sin comes from. Sin comes from the devil, sin comes from Adam. And anyone who's reading the scriptures honestly will see that when God created everything, he created it very good. It was perfect. There was no sin in Genesis one. There was no sin in Genesis two. And so that again that sort of begs the question of, well, where did sin come from? And that's sort of the question people come up with. In terms of its source, I think part of the problem that people have is the idea that sin is an actual thing or sin is an actual substance. And if it's an actual thing or substance, then it had to be created. But the very definition of sin then is wrong. Sin is not a substance or thing that came into being, but sin is the lack of righteousness. Right? Sin is the lack of holiness. It's the void, if you will, of righteousness. So if we're going to talk about things philosophically or logically, we have to be Clear in pointing out that sin actually is not a created thing in and of itself, but it is the lack of God's image. It is the lack of righteousness. It's the lack of holiness. And our confessions speak that way. And the scriptures speak that way as well. And so when we get to the true cause of sin, we can get to the point of saying, well, where did someone, whether the devil or man, where did they turn away from God's righteousness? Because God is always righteous. God has continued to be righteous. And the only way that God could be the author or the cause of sin is if he turns away from himself, which he can't do. And that's just a logical fallacy. But certainly man has turned away from God, and the devil has turned away from God. And therefore, there are your sources, not of a new creation or a new created substance, even though we sometimes speak that way, and we'll get into where Fallacious got confused on all of this stuff. But it's not really a new created substance as much as it's an absence of righteousness. It's a walking away from righteousness. So that in Genesis 5, for example, when it talks about the fact that Adam had been made in God's image, now because he no longer bears God's image, because he has moved away from that, now when Seth comes along, the scriptures say that Seth was born in Adam's image because it is absent God's image. That's a really difficult one for people to hear, that man is not, after the fall, naturally according to God's image. Uh, How often do we hear phrases like, we are all God's children? Not actually true. Not actually true. As much as we can sympathize with what the intention is in saying that, that we love and respect our fellow man just because we are all part of God's creation. That doesn't mean that we are all children of God. None of us were actually born in the likeness of God, even though we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God makes us according to his created will, and yet he does so not ex nihilo, not as if poof, he made us out of nothing, but he makes this generation through the lineage of Adam. And because Adam is fallen, then what is handed down to us is imperfection so that we can at the same time say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made according to the creation, but I was also born and conceived in iniquity according to the fall. So the cause of sin is never God. God is not the author of evil. The cause of sin is always man. And of course, the agent in that is the devil. And so logically, that's simply, I think, The basic argument to make, hopefully I've answered it to uh, the listener's satisfaction in pointing out that sin is not a substance, sin is absence, and as soon as we see that, it's not about saying, well, God had to create something before man arrived, but rather when man arrived on the scene and then man willed himself away from God's righteousness, there is the quote-unquote cause or creation of sin.
0: I think you cover that really well, and I like how you talked about it. It's the, you know, sin is the lack of righteousness. It's the lack of goodness that God created us in, right? And so one of the other ways that we'll talk about it then as well is that we're in rebellion against the goodness that God created. We're in rebellion against God. And I think that there's still kind of another logical layer to this that we need to address And maybe I'm bringing in the discussion of felicious and the free will and those sorts of things a little earlier than you were wanting to get to. But I I think as we're talking about this logical thing, I think we have to wrestle with this because, you know, when we talk about being in rebellion, lacking the goodness, the fact that we turned away, I think logically people still want to reason, well, then how did that happen? You know, God must have created me With rebellion in me that I could even do it, or you know that might be what's thrown out there. And and when I'm talking about you know people would say this. Obviously, this is something that within the church, as we you know are created with these minds that are wonderful gift that want to figure these things out. You know we wrestle with it in the church. Obviously, there's those outside the church unbelievers who use this as an attack. You know, see God caused all of the problems in the world, and so you know kind of got those different fronts going on there, but once again, you know, as we consider, well, then how did my rebellion come up within me, or how did mankind's rebellion come up within us? Well, how did that happen? This would be related then to our discussion on the free will, right? So do you want to go ahead and bring that in?
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, The discussion on the free will, I think this is sort of the fundamental question is, well, what type of free will are we talking about? And as you guys talked about last week, The idea of free will would have to be free will, are we talking about before the fall? Are we talking about after the fall? Are we talking about man's bondage of the will because of his being enslaved to sin after the fall? Are we talking about free will in matters of reason that do not rise to the level of spiritual matters of justification and salvation? There are so many different ways in which we can speak of or contexts in which free will can be spoken of that we have to very carefully define, which context are you speaking in? Uh, If you go back to article two, way back there, though it's not really the main point, I think article two really actually makes this a very clear discussion when it uses these words. It says that we are born with sin, that is without fear of God. Notice how we were talking about the absence of things, right? The absence of righteousness, the rebellion, the turning away from, and this void of righteousness. So born with sin, that is without fear of God, without trust in God. And now notice how the last phrase almost sounds like something has been added to us and therefore with inclination to sin. So when people talk about sin as sort of being this something that is inbred in me, they think it comes because God somehow put it in there or that it's somehow natural to me now according to how God created me, according to the fall. Uh, almost as if it's part of God's design. And this is where Flacius accidentally had a problem, was the difference between, and here are two philosophical terms, the accidents of a person and the substance of a person, right? Namely, is this something that is inherently and naturally part of the person's creation and being, or is it something that, in a sense, is not part of his nature, but simply part of the outward description of him in the particular context he finds himself in. Uh, You know, I think the common one is to say that a chair is a chair as part of its substance, you know, based on four legs or whatever, a seat, a back. But the color of the chair would be sort of part of the accidents that it does not, you know, you can change the color and it still does not change the substance of what makes a chair a chair. Uh, Fallacious got into a problem, and this actually comes up, or is resolved in the formula of Concord. Fallacious got into a problem where he was trying so hard to point out that we do not have free will after the fall into sin, that we have this bondage of the will. And he was trying so hard to rightly defend this notion that we do not have the free will to choose for God or choose against God, as some people think you're born sort of in this neutral position, you have to choose for or against. And Flacius got so wrapped up in trying to defend this that he accidentally, and yet sort of maliciously at a point and, uh, you know, sort of stubbornly at a point until he was called to repentance, he sort of fell into the trap of saying that sin is naturally sort of a substance of man, that it's part of our very being. Well, that's not true. Man is God's creation sin is foreign to the way that God designed Adam and Eve. And therefore, even though you and I are children of Adam and according to the fall, it is part of our fallen nature, that fallen nature is not who God created us to be. And in the resurrection, sin will not still be a plague upon us. So if sin is naturally part of who our created being is, then fallacious would have to argue that in the resurrection, Sin would still be there because in the resurrection, God will restore us in a sense or raise our bodies to immortality. And yet, He will not give us a different self than who we are. He will simply raise us to what we naturally were intended to be according to the creation and according to perfection. Uh, and so, sin is not naturally part of who we are. And that has to be part of the discussion as well in terms of, you know, how did this get in me? It did not get into me because God created me this way but rather it has entered in me through the line of the fall, through the lineage of Adam. If we understand sin, again, first and foremost, not as an added substance like a cancer, but first and foremost as an absence of what once was, then we see God did not create me with this absence, but rather I inherited this absence of righteousness from Adam so that I am without fear of God, without trust in God, And then, in a sense, to fill the void, Adam has given me this inclination toward sin. Uh, The Apology for Article 2 says it likewise in such a simple and yet defining way. The ancient definition of original sin, it says, this is a quote from Apology 2, paragraph 23, the ancient definition of original sin is that it is a lack of righteousness. So, notice, we shouldn't define sin as something tangible, if you will, but rather it is the lack, it is the losing of righteousness. So that in all of Jesus' parables, for example, he's often referring to the lost because the one who is without righteousness is the one who has lost God's righteousness, the one who is without fear, love, and trust in God above all
0: things. Couple of things. First, I think that may be the most charitable presentation of Flacius that we've ever had on this show. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just the fact that you brought in that he was rightly doing something, you know, because as you then said, yeah, he definitely got pretty stubborn in things after that and needed to be refuted as we go over all the time on this. But then, secondly, I would also say that's an excellent presentation of exactly this is a philosophical argument in so many different ways. I mean, not just in the way that it's being presented and handled within the confession itself, but really, I mean, this is all part of our wondering of how did this happen? How did this come to be? And that is the very nature of what philosophy is seeking to address. And I think you laid out that really well for us. But we're not just going to have a purely philosophical discussion, because especially as Christians, we should never engage in philosophy apart from Scripture. And certainly we've seen, you know, how logically we've tried to make Scripture that seems in contradiction with one another fit together. And so we're going to go ahead and take a break here, but on the other side of the break, we're going to get into the Scripture passages that walk us through how do we have a, a true philosophy, a true logic from the Word of God address these matters so that we have a right understanding of this and that's what we'll pick up on the other side of the break here with our guest today pastor mark Vestal. i'm your host pastor sean smith and you're listening to concord Banners on kfuel the life of the christian church is a life in exile we are grieved by various trials false teachers and their deceptive teachings wage war against the truth? How can we believe and live as faithful and joyful Christians while we sojourn here? This is Pastor Timothy Apple, host of Sharper Iron. We're starting a new series, The Imperishable Inheritance. We will be going through 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. Join us every weekday morning at 8 on KFUO to rejoice in the imperishable inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Welcome back to Concord Matters. As we continue talking about Article 19 from the Augsburg Confession today on the cause of sin, and we are talking with our guest, Pastor Mark Bestel. He's pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And Pastor Bestel, you were setting up there for us in the first part of the show today that really this is a philosophical argument. It's the nature of trying to figure out where did the cause of sin come from? and. When we have this, you know, it's important to understand those parts of the philosophical argument, and you laid that out really well for us in the first segment, but when we address this as Christians, we always want to address this from scripture and understand this from scripture. And so let's go ahead and get into that here then. And I think probably a good place to start is in the garden where it all starts, right? Take a look at the cause of sin there scripturally. And then that'll naturally flow in, I think, to how we understand the cause of sin today in our own lives. Is it just merely, well, because Adam and Eve messed up, or as I often like to say, and probably one of my five favorite sayings is, is had I been there, I would have done it at least three times faster, right? You know? And so you know, <laughs> how, how does that still affect the cause of sin in me today? And how do we understand that as far as from scripture as well?
1: I think it's a really common question in Bible studies and in, you know, Sunday school classrooms, the question of, well, why was God so mean that he gave Adam and Eve this tree and tempted them by it, and, uh, you know, they were just, everyone knows what was going to happen, right? And that's sort of where we almost set Adam and Eve up to be victims of this terribly cruel God, and therefore God must be the cause of sin. But, you know, again, think about this, I guess, to use the word logically or philosophically. The scriptural word for Adam and Eve from the beginning is that they were in God's image, which means they had no inclination to sin. So, if you go back to Article 2, and it says that we are born with sin that is without fear of God, without trust in God, and therefore with inclination to sin. You and I cannot properly grasp what must have been happening in the garden Because every time we think of things, we think through the lens of an inclination to sin. We think through the lens of old Adam and we think, well, of course I would give in to that. I'm just inclined toward that. And we almost excuse ourselves from that. But Adam and Eve were in God's image. Adam and Eve were perfect, holy, righteous. They had no inclination to sin. And so God is not at fault for what happens in the garden. We can't even fathom what it must have meant for Adam and Eve to willfully, to use the word, free will, you know, before the bondage of sin, uh, to willfully reject their righteousness and their unity with God. Uh, We just can't fathom it because for us, it's just sort of, to use a phrase, second nature, right? I mean, that's how we excuse old Adam. Well, it's just naturally who I am. No, it's natural according to the fall, not according to creation. But those two who knew a creation apart from the fall, they had no inclination to go the way of the devil. And yet, that's exactly what they did. So, on the one hand, we can say, well, there is the cause of sin. But then, again, the Sunday school answer or, or the, excuse me, the Sunday school question or the Bible study question, the hand shoots up again and says, yeah, but, but what about the devil? Well, where did the devil come from if God isn't the cause of sin? Why, you know, why did this happen? Well, I think I hinted real briefly in the first half of the hour on Ezekiel 28 is a great passage to show God's own description of the devil falling from, to use the phrase, falling from grace. And it actually starts, for those who want to read it, we won't read the whole thing here, but it starts right around verse 12 or so in Ezekiel 28. And it seems to be A Lament Over the King of Tyre is the subtitle in that section. But as you start to read it, you realize that these are almost sort of poetic images that are actually describing the fall of Satan. When it talks about, you were in Eden in the garden of God, you were an anointed guardian cherub, which of course the cherub is is one of the angels. And it talks about the fall of Satan there. And so we can see that the scripture very plainly, even if it's not Always well known to us, the scripture very plainly says, well, here's where evil came from. It didn't come from God. It came from the devil falling. It came from man falling because they rejected the righteousness of God. They rejected fear, love, and trust in God above all things and without inclination, but because of, in a sense, their own fervent desire to step away. And beyond that, you know, the scriptures are silent. So one can try to philosophically and logically argue. Well, where, you know, where did they? Where were they tempted with all that desire? You know, th- things of that nature. At a certain point, we have to realize human reason cannot answer all of these things, which is why now we're spending the last twenty minutes here in Scripture, because human reason is not the here, all, and end all of determining God's holy will. We can't be so proud of ourselves to think that the created perfectly understands the Creator. Think of how God answers Job when he says, all right, you dress like a man and be prepared to answer because I'm now going to grill you. And God launches into Job, you know, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Uh, And so we have to have some humility in these things and realize that reason does not lead to all knowledge of God. This is where I think Calvin falls off the horse big time, is that he's constantly trying to say that the scripture has to be answerable to human reason, because reason is a gift from God and part of God's creation. Well, yes, reason before the fall was, but after the fall, reason is tainted. So that when you get to something like the Age of Enlightenment, if we're going to talk about philosophy, look where the Age of Enlightenment has carried us. For so many years, we were so proud of the Age of Enlightenment, and yet all it's done, uh, when you begin with Descartes, I think, therefore I am, And I always love to point out that that, maybe it's coincidental, uh, but I think, therefore, and then he uses the very phrase that is the name of God, right? I think, therefore, I am, almost as if man in his pride says, because I can reason, therefore, I don't need God anymore. I'm God in his place, and therefore, I can answer all of these questions about, you know, and we get off on these logical uh, and philosophical arguments about could God Create a stone too big for him to lift. Well, that's just the folly of human reason. And we see what's happened now through the age of the Enlightenment, because the further we use human reason as sort of a, you know, the hear all and end all of these things, sort of in a supreme magisterial use, the further away we get from truth, so that now today we can say, I can't define the word woman, and half the society nods its head in approval and says, oh yeah, I I don't know that I can define the word woman either. It's just absurdity because we're trying to follow human reason. So instead, let's look at the scriptures. We started with, you know, going back to the garden, and there in the garden, we see that Adam and Eve, you know, once they eat the fruit, they realize they are naked. Before this, they had no inclination towards shame, just as they had no inclination towards sin. Why would they be ashamed, right? And isn't that sort of the question that God asks Adam in the garden? Well, who told you you were naked? At the end of chapter 2, you were naked and you didn't care. Now, all of a sudden, you care? Well, why is that? It's because Adam now has removed himself from God's righteousness. And so, there is where we see the beginning of all of this. And from that, we see the rest of the scriptures also constantly pointing back to this reality. Uh, It comes up in Article 2 early in the Augsburg Confession. I think we could also bring it up here, and that's the passage in Romans 5, where it talks about the idea that through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. So notice that Adam gets the blame. Of course, God has no reason to get the blame, uh, but it doesn't even blame the devil there. It simply blames man. Through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. You've also got passages like 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the resurrection, which again is sort of the visible proof that sin has been overcome and it is not part of God's will in creation. All right, that sin has been overcome and therefore, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So, yes, all men die with Adam, all men go to the grave with Adam, and yet the overcoming of that sin also means the glory of the resurrection and sort of the restoration, and even beyond the restoration, I would argue, of what that original creation was. We could also look at passages that refer to, well, as as Article 19 itself refers to, John chapter 8, where it talks about the idea that one speaks from his own character, when he lies, when the devil lies, he speaks out of his own character. This sort of starts to get to, no pun intended, the heart of the matter which is that sin is that which is of the heart. Sin is that which is of man. Um, I know I'm jumping around the scriptures here, but to jump back to Genesis for a minute, think about Genesis chapter six, in which the Lord laments that his creation has fallen into such sin and disarray through the fall. And so it says that when he looks at man's heart, it was evil, you know, it was only evil continually. I believe that's uh, six verse five, something like that and therefore the flood comes, that there might be a mini starting over in some respects. So, you're seeing these constant hints throughout the scripture of the fact that man's soul is the problem, and that is not because God breathed into Adam a corrupt soul, but it's because Adam and Eve defiantly removed themselves from God's righteousness, and therefore you and I, as we are born into this reality, as we're conceived in this reality, we are conceived without fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Think of how Jesus says it in the Gospels uh, when he says in Matthew 15 that it's not what enters into a man, right? It's not what he takes in that causes him to be defiled. And this, of course, is in the context of you know the Pharisees and the Sadducees and chief priests and all, you know, all the religious leaders always worried about whether or not man is ceremonially clean. And Jesus says, it's not what goes into the body that's the problem. It's what comes out of the heart. And it's what comes out of man that is the problem. And that sort of shows that the cause of sin today is inherently you and me because of the fall. And therefore, one cannot say, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? because by definition, there is no such thing as a good person, according to the fall. And so you can see where all of these logical and philosophical concepts that God is at fault, they miss the very clear scriptural record. And interestingly, in this one case, in the Confutation, the Roman Catholic theologians, I think, actually use the scriptures pretty well. Uh, If you read the Confutation on this, It quotes, for example, Jeremiah 2, uh, where it says, thine own wickedness shall correct thee and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. So it points out that it's man's wickedness that is the problem. Or it quotes again, Hosea 13. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thy help, the Lord says. And so, yes, it's not that God destroyed Israel, it's that Israel destroyed Israel. It's not that God destroys us, it's that we've already destroyed ourselves and As our liturgy says every Sunday, our help is in the name of the Lord, our help from all of the enemies out there, our help from the devil, the world, and, as Luther says in his phrases, the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, our sinful flesh. Uh, Again, you've got other citations, even right in the Confutation, that cite, for example, Psalm 5. And then in the Confutation, it even says, God, the supremely good, is not the author of evils but the rational and defectible will is the cause of sin." So notice it does point to, I think rightly, the human reason Interestingly, uh, I would say that maybe I detect a little bit of disagreement in Rome's confutation by saying that the will is defectible, almost as if when they get back into their philosophical, you know, and they fall off the horse into their philosophical argument, well, the will is basically good, but it's, it can be influenced in bad ways, right? And, and I think as you get into some of its discussion on semi-Pelagianism and things like that, you see where even though on the surface, Rome would say, yeah, You know, human reason is fallen, man is fallen, original sin. It almost says, well, the will is weak and easily deceived, but is basically pretty good. And so, interestingly, right in there, even though they say, all right, we accept what you Lutherans write so that the Lutherans don't have to put anything else in the Apology. It's a very, very short article in the Apology here in Article 19. Yet, there still would seem to be some very subtle underlying disagreements between Rome's view of man's natural state after the fall, which is really what we're talking about. Again, when the reader gets to Article 19, even though we've taken a lot of time to jump all the way back to the beginning, the Lutherans are very careful about saying what we can really talk about with specificity is the scriptural word regarding life since the fall. And so, since the fall, we recognize all these things to be true because the scriptures are very clear that the source and the cause of sin is man's own wicked heart.
0: Yeah. With that, then, I think a good place to pick up that conversation and take it a little further is in the confession itself here in Article 19. It says it's located in the will of the wicked, that is, the devil and ungodly people. And I think as we wrestle with that, you know, a lot of folks, especially in our contemporary context with kind of wrestling who's in me and so forth and i like how you brought in you know the the whole descartes you know i think therefore i am that's that's the very much nature of sin itself even as you say you know it takes on the divine name there i am you know i want to be god right and yet i think as we still have that inclination within ourselves to want to be god and so forth even within christian circles a lot of people might say well, this ungodly people doesn't apply to me. And then kind of the other thing that we're facing there too is is this common idea of the devil made me do it. You know, he's the one cited there in John 8. And so, you know, really he's, you know, you could just say, you know, the devil is the cause of sin, but that's not what we say here. And so as we wrestle with this, you know, since the fall things, go ahead and get us into some of that discussion here as well. What What are we talking about? with these two things being cited here, the devil and ungodly people?
1: Well, certainly we can talk about the devil being the accuser, the devil being the tempter, you know, uh, some of the words and some of the names regarding him that he's given, Satan means accuser, and and certainly at other times we see how he's the tempter, and that he tempts Christ in the wilderness in exactly the same way that he tempted the woman in the garden, in exactly the same way then as we should learn, and it's not the main point of that lesson every Sunday in Lent. It's not the main point to say, oh, look how the devil tempted Jesus, he's going to tempt you the same way. That's not the main point, but it certainly is something that we should take from it, that the devil's methods are in a sense tried and true. And so we can speak of the devil as a, you know, some of the daily cause of wickedness, but only as an agent or only as the tempter. We cannot say the devil made me do it and then by that claim ourselves to be a victim. Uh, And and that's true, and then when we talk about ungodly people, what are we talking about? We're talking about our natural state before conversion, that before the man is converted, every man that is conceived is conceived in sin, and therefore every man is accountable to God for his wickedness. And that is true of all people, especially before conversion, and even the converted individual does not—conversion does not mean that one is immediately made to be holy right? So sanctification, even though it immediately starts with justification. So when you are declared righteous, and this is perhaps a little bit of a difference, uh, well, I would argue a pretty big difference, but a subtle difference sometimes between the Roman Catholic argument on these things and the Lutheran argument is that for Roman Catholic theologians and, and even for some of the Protestant understanding out there, justification means that God has made you righteous and holy so that you are no longer you know, burdened with the old Adam. And that's simply not true. So Paul even talks about himself. Here's a Christian, and he's been a Christian for a good number of, of years and, and decades by the time the book of Romans is written. And yet right in Romans chapter seven, he's even the converted still admits, you know, he, he talks about, and you are talking about this word wrestling. He talks about the idea of wrestling against that, which is inherently uh, sort of plaguing him Now, the new man, the the new Adam, is no longer the same old Adam. It's not an improvement of the old. And this is where I say sanctification is not this instant perfection by which then any time that we fall into sin, we can say, well, I'm the victim, the devil made me do it. But rather, uh, the new uh, Adam is there to wrestle with the old Adam and drown the old Adam because the old Adam is still a problem. So that Paul wrestles with that all throughout chapter 7 and says that if I agree with the law that it is good, and now notice how that definitionally is no longer the old Adam because the old Adam is without fear, love, and trust in God. So the new Adam says, hey, I agree with the law that it is good. And so then Paul goes on and says, then in a sense, it's not I who sin against God, but there's a war between my members and my, and my mind, he says, the, the new Adam and the, and the old Adam. So whenever we talk about who we are, we always have to sort of revert back to the confession, I, a poor, miserable sinner. I am not a good, holy, perfect, you know, sort of Pharisaical Christian. When people come into the Church of God, they are not coming among a bunch of inherently holy people. We are declared holy, right? We are credited with that status and title because of Christ's righteousness and Christ's blood. But it's not until the resurrection that all of our Unholiness is finally and permanently drowned, uh, or not until death that the old Adam dies, and then in the resurrection there's the purity of righteousness before God forever. So whether it's before conversion, in which we are right to absolutely talk about the ungodly, the wicked, that this is our natural state according to the fall. But even as Lutherans, we would say even even the converted man is not therefore all of a sudden holy and righteous, so that he is above the ability to sin. But sadly, he still wrestles with the old Adam and therefore must always confess, I, a poor, miserable sinner.
0: I think this is a good point to get into then. But just a few minutes here before we'll have to wrap up today. You know, we brought in a few points where we still see this disagreement or issues that we still see in our context today. But how does this clear confession of this article still matter for the church today?
1: It really matters when it comes back to the central article, I think, the central article or the chief article being justification in Christ alone, right? that I cannot claim any credit for my standing before God. I cannot claim any part of righteousness. Uh, I cannot claim you know, even 1% of the work and merit of righteousness, which, sadly, really distinguishes the Lutheran confessions from so many of the church bodies and their false teachings out there. Whether you're looking at the uh, Heidelberg Catechism or whether you're looking at the Confutation or whatever it is, man is constantly trying to say there's still something in him worth saving. That's not true. By definition, if you are saved by grace, it means there is no merit. And that is true not only of what you do, but of who you are. And at first, that might sound like just a a horrible thing to say of my fellow man or of myself i mean it it almost sounds like maybe you're just depressed and 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 you just uh, need someone to tell you that you're really not that bad of a person. But if we take scripture seriously, it's actually a very freeing thing to be able to admit it to say, "I am such a poor, miserable sinner. I cannot hope in anything of myself, but I have a God who." desires to be merciful. A God whose plan has been one of mercy all throughout this. Uh, That Not only did he know that Adam would fall, but he already had the answer pre-planned so that when he shows up on the scene after the fall of Adam, God is not speechless and he doesn't say, oh man, now what am I going to do? But rather, his very first word is the word of gospel, where he declares to the serpent the cause of sin. Uh, He declares and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. And there is the first gospel, right? So God already comes on the scene with this. So this is such an important concept, this concept of original sin As you talked about in Article 2, and again, sort of here later in the Confessions, we, we sort of have to come back to it and almost double down on it just to make sure that everybody understands. If you don't understand sin scripturally, if you don't get sin right in terms of your theological understanding of it, you're going to lessen who Christ is. You're going to say, yeah, Christ is my helper, Christ is my teacher, Christ is my life coach, Christ is my advocate, but ultimately you're going to put your hope in yourself. And that hope is actually what leads to despair. It does not lead to despair to say, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. Now, people can use it almost pietistically, and they can almost say things like, oh, I am the absolute worst of sinners, and almost delight in that. Well, that's not the point either. But the point is to say, no, as Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips and I have seen the Lord of hosts. Right this should be a tragic reality for us that on a Sunday morning when we come before the altar of God we would have every reason to tremble in fear and shame and not want God to come among us. And yet because God is so gracious to give his only begotten son for the sins of the whole world he now distributes that to us so that each and every Sunday we can come not in fear and trembling, but also in love and trust. And we can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved and call upon the name of the Lord and have the distribution of our inheritance fed to us each and every Sunday, so that it's no longer with fear and trembling, but now with joy and awe that we can sing, holy, holy, holy Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Blessed is he, blessed is he, blessed is he, who right now in this holy hour Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, comes in the name of the Lord to serve us sinners. As Jesus says, it is not the righteous who need saving, it's the sinner. It's not the well who need a physician, but the sick. So when we are willing to confess what the scriptures say of us, that we are broken, then the gospel shines brightly and clearly, and God is faithful and just, forgives us from all sins, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So this proper understanding of sin, though it's no fun to think of ourselves this way, and it's no fun to admit this. It is so necessary in order to hear the joy and the beauty of the gospel.
0: Absolutely, and I love how you take that this not only relates to our chief doctrine of the church, but plays out very practically in how we worship as Lutheran Christians, and you walk us through the liturgy there, and I think that that's why it's so important that we begin our divine service with coming on bended knee and I try to in my pastoral practice and where churches have the kneelers and so forth, I encourage folks to do that, to actually come on bended knee. And it's like you say, not in the pietistic sense of where, you know, we kind of do it almost for a show or as a way out is sometimes the way that I see it. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, of course I'm a sinner, you know, and so it's kind of my get out of jail free card. But know that we recognize that as related to this particular article, that I am the cause of sin. I have that within me and I fall prey to the devil's temptations all the time. And I am undone, as you say. And so I just come on bended knee and I physically do that to tell myself that this is the reality of my situation. And then it just leads us so beautifully into the gospel there as well. Um, Go ahead and wrap us up here in a minute or so here today. How does this connect in with what's still coming in the Augsburg Confession here? And give us your parting thoughts here.
1: Sure, as we talked about at the top of the hour, here you've got these three articles, sort of bam, 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 right in a row: free will, the cause of sin, good works. Which really, in the second half, now the Lutheran confessors are starting to argue against what they see are some of the problematic views of Roman Catholic teaching on really on justification when it comes down to it. Uh, and that's followed up by the way a few articles down from here, worship of the saints, right? And then you get just into some of these bad errors, and so. This really is a helpful place for the Lutheran confessors to go at this point to say, all right, now, as we start to wrestle with these controverted articles, we really have to reaffirm the foundational element of what is the Christian faith in terms of where sin comes from, just how deep and depraved sin is, and just, therefore, how much trouble we're in, except by the grace of God, except by the fact that God does not come to love the lovable. He comes and he loves that which deserves no love. And yet, how gracious is God and how gracious is his Christ to joyfully do the will of his Father to come and be the sin bearer for us, that in him we might be declared
0: the righteousness of God. Absolutely. Well said. And as you set up earlier as well, that you know these articles 18, 19, and 20 are very much related here as well. You know The free will influences how we talk about the cause of sin, and you talked uh, at length about that. But then Obviously, it's going to connect to our next article here as well in terms of good works and how we understand that this side of the fall. And so that's what we'll pick up next week as we look at Article 20 of the Augsburg Confession on good works. But today, thank you, Pastor Mark Bessel, for joining us again for Concord Matters and teaching us the Lutheran Confession of the Cause of Sin here from Article 19 of the Augsburg Confession. It's been a great pleasure having you join us again today. My
1: pleasure. Thanks a lot, Sean.
0: And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.